General Broadcast, the podcast by the East of England Ambulance Service for the Ambulance Service. My name is Jordan, the Patient Safety Integration Lead for the Trust. I really hope you're all well and that you and your families are staying safe in this weird time still. We know that pre-hospital work can be challenging at the best of times. Crews are presented with a number of issues and illnesses when on the road and need to make complex choices about the best care plan for that individual patient. That's easier said than done sometimes, with some patients not wanting to go to hospital, some who have complex needs and some where hospital isn't quite the right path for them. It can be very challenging. This week, I got the opportunity to sit down with some of the patient safety team from East to talk about what's important when we leave patients at home. We go over quite a lot of the non-technical skills in these situations like shared decision making and checking for biases and making sure we're not jumping to conclusions. Similar to when we spoke to Andy Collin recently, we talk about what you should do if you don't feel like you've made the right decision and how important it is to say when you think something is wrong. This is the kind of conversation we have quite a lot in the team, so it's really exciting to be able to share this with you all. I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, so brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, what I'd like to do first is to go around and explain who we are and what we do, because it's the first time actually we as a team or most of the team have been on one of these. So, Jen, can I start with you and just have you briefly explain who you are and what you do in the Trust? Uh, morning, I'm Jen McClaggish. I've been with the Trust for, for 21 years. Um, started in PTS, then worked my way up tech power. I've done six years in ECAT and joined the patient safety team in January of this year. Thank you. Uh, Lou, what about you? Yeah, I joined the Ambulance Service in 2006. Um, I was fortunate enough to join HEMS in 2012 and became a, para- a critical care paramedic shortly after that. Um, I joined the patient safety team just short of a year ago as a patient safety officer with Jen. Um, and uh, our main role is to review all incidents reported to the trust um, and we're looking for any incidents that involve patient harm or patient safety issues um, and trying to get any learning out of those and, and sort of try and avoid future occurrences. That's awesome, thank you. And what about you? Hi, yeah, I'm Andrea. I'm the safety and risk lead for the organisation and what that means is that I have patient safety health and safety and investigations in my portfolio Um, and before that I was uh, a paramedic. Amazing. I just realised as well that this is probably the fifth or sixth podcast I've done and I've not explained who I am or what I do in the trust so that's really good of me. Uh, For those of you that don't know my name's Jordan, I'm the patient safety integration lead for the trust and what that means is that I work with these guys and another patient safety officer called Dave who can't be with us today and I look at the incidents and what's going on in the organisation and I try and find ways of integrating the learning that we found back into it. So one of the main ways at the minute is through podcasts because we can't get to people to share the learning so let's take it to them in this format. 
Anne, as the uh, head of the department, could you just give us a brief overview of what the patient safety team in East do? Because some people might be listening to this who are outside the organisation. Yeah, of course. I th- and I think it's really important that we kind of understand that. So um, obviously, as Lou has already explained, that the patient safety team is kind of structured with uh, three patient safety officers and yourself, Jordan, as the, the integration lead. And then beneath uh, those guys, then we've got the investigations team who uh, are, are best known for producing the serious incident reports, which hopefully people have seen out and about around the organisation on notice boards and in folders. And hopefully um, people have had a chance to have a look through those and um, kind of uh, look at the, the learning that we've identified through investigating incidents and, and embedded that into their practice. So, as I say, like, like Lou's already said, um, we are kind of the uh, gatekeepers, as it were, to the incidents which come in to the organisation. So they are incidents reported by our own staff or by other organisations um, who have noted where something hasn't gone quite right uh, and have raised an incident to us. And the, the patient safety officers will, on a daily basis, um, sieve through those incidents to see if there are any which look like they uh, may require a higher level of investigation such as a, an SI but also those which we feel may have a, a really high chance of getting some really good learning out of in in terms of kind of learning outcomes to share widely across the organization to prevent incidents from from occurring and the overall aim the overarching aim really is to reduce harm to our patients and, and service users um, once obviously the investigation is complete, as you've already said, George, then the, the learning is taken and um, hopefully modified and, and um, made different kind of uh, resources and, and, and launched onto different platforms so that people have a really good chance of, of viewing that learning, engaging with that learning, and then um, hopefully kind of um, augmenting and changing their practice based on that learning so that we we reduce harm and reduce incidents from occurring in the future. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. That was a really good and concise overview, I think, of, of what we do. So we're here today to talk about uh, conveying patients or not conveying patients in some cases. And sticking with you, what's wrong with not just taking every patient into hospital? Why do we not just take everyone in because that was that was an old adage wasn't it if you took every patient in then you couldn't possibly do wrong yeah absolutely I think you know that is maybe a a very historic kind of way of looking at things um but certainly like the modern way the ambulance service um operates it's clearly not possible to convey every single patient to hospital um obviously our our workload and patient demographic has changed significantly over certainly my career, so over the last sort of 15 to 20 years even, um, the, the type of work which we do as an, as an operational ambulance service has, has changed. So we are dealing, I guess, more so, as everybody knows, with kind of uh, lower acuity types of conditions uh, which don't necessarily always require hospitalisation um, for either treatment or further tests or assessments to be able to manage effectively. So 
you know, it's less about taking everybody to hospital um, these days. It's not necessarily about admission avoidance either, which is obviously something which has been um, talked about in the past. Uh, but for me, what it is, is appropriate admission. So um, it's actually looking at the, the patient's condition and identifying whether they would benefit from being conveyed to hospital or whether actually it would be more in their best interests to be managed outside of hospital, um, obviously fitting in with the NHS's view as well of, of trying to provide care in the right place at the right time um, and first time um, to patients so that it's more convenient for them and, and better fits in with their wishes. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. And I think it's really interesting that we've got you guys on because you you all have quite a, a mixed background and can actually talk about this in, uh, in I think, quite interesting ways. So, Jane, if I can go to you first, you, you work in ECAT. Um, firstly, would you be able to just give us a brief overview of what that is for people, again, who may be outside the trust? And also kind of explain uh, your experiences, both on the road and in control of uh, of not taking patients into hospital or using other other healthcare routes. So the ECAP team is the emergency clinical advice and triage team. Um, a percentage of triple nine calls are streamed off and placed into there, where we have a number of experienced paramedics, nurses, and soon to be mental health professionals, so that they can triage the calls and refer them on to appropriate care pathways. So some of the calls will go through there, they'll be upgraded or downgraded and then go back out for a face-to-face referral. That's not to say that patient needs to go to hospital, it's just that they need a face-to-face assessment before that decision is made. Um, Some calls will be advised to go to their GP or to urgent care centres or to make their own way into A&E departments it's it's about getting them the right care at the right time in the right place and not just necessarily sending them an ambulance I think um, telephone triage is certainly a new way of assessing I was quite an experienced paramedic when I went into there and found myself very out of my comfort zone to be able to assess somebody and make a decision when you can't actually see them that's been negated recently because um, see here and treat has come in where video conferencing was actually introduced this week so that the ECAP clinicians can actually see their patients, which I think will help to make safe decisions as well. And the triage in there is supported by a, a tool, a triage tool, which can ensure safe decisions as well. It's um, it's not scripted. They don't have to script to questions, but it's a guide in the background just to ensure that red flags are checked as they go through and make assessments on the phone. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And what about your experience of working on the road, having been in ECAT? Do you think that's impacted uh, your your view of, of taking patients in or, or using these other pathways which you have access to? It's certainly streamed my assessment. So when I go into a patient now, I almost have the algorithm in my head um, from the computer system in ECAT. So it's streamlined my assessment. It's helped very much so with my red flag um, recognition as well and my knowledge of the alternative care pathways. I didn't really use MIDOS very much until I was in ECAT and I was introduced to it there and then realised what a valuable tool it is. Um, Specifically things like providing bypass telephone numbers for GP surgeries, 
so we can get through to them much quicker on the road. I think it's probably helped to increase my confidence in leaving people at home very much so but still within a very safe way because I'm aware of the red flags and the referrals and everything else but I think as the years have gone on my confidence with leaving at homes has definitely increased with that that knowledge and experience. That's fantastic thank you so much and Lou this is going to get a bit confusing because we've already recorded a podcast where you and another CCP are talking about the work that you do, but this one's going out first. So listen to that one after as well for more of an insight into what Lou and her colleagues do. But again, can you remind us, you have a slightly different view of it because of your CCP role and more often than not, your patients are going into hospital so can you talk about your experience of conveying and non-conveying patients yeah absolutely um I think it's fair to say and I know a lot of my colleagues feel the same that the more knowledge I've gained um having done the educational pathway so the master's in critical care um and also the sicker patients that I have seen um it's definitely changed my threshold in that I actually feel like there's more patients that I want to take to hospital than I previously did. And that's probably the the more you know, the more that scares you that's that's out there. Um, and uh, I think it is that sort of blindness to what could be the risks in leaving someone at home when you're sort of less experienced. That's That is the risky area. And I think that's the area we need to really be aware of. Um, so definitely as I've developed more experience and understanding, it's, it's definitely changed my threshold. And then obviously coming into the patient safety team, um, we're getting to see the patients that that do fall into that category. So it, it, it probably makes me a very cautious clinician, um, but I think in a good way. I think I think I still obviously want to do what Ant was saying is do the um the right the right treatment the right place the right time for the patient um but yeah it definitely has changed my threshold so it's not taking you to the line that again the historic line of the best life-saving liquid is diesel for every single patient what you can't see on the video is that everyone's laughing at that because it's an old adage we shouldn't be using it but it still sometimes has a point yeah i think so i, I definitely think i think I think uh, it's not just about running patients into hospital anymore. I think it's been a bit more clever than that. And what, what were you going to say? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, whilst it is a bit of an old-fashioned saying, there are certain times when actually there is still some truth behind it. So obviously what we you know try and what we're trying to push out there at the moment is around the 10 10 stuff isn't it so along the lines where there's some kind of time um sensitive conditions such as strokes and STEMIs actually what we are saying is we want to do a rapid turnaround on scene within 10 minutes get them on on board the ambulance and get them to hospital as quickly as possible so whilst it might not be quite as simple these days as saying diesel's the best form of medicine actually in terms of trying to expedite some patients care is um is vital yeah definitely and the the kind of message that i'm getting from all of you is that there is a real balance isn't there there's so many things that you have to consider when deciding whether to leave a patient at home or to take them in and uh, you know as a pre-hospital setting that can be really challenging but I want to go on to why we think that 
people leave patients at home? And I'm going to start with Lou first this time. What what factors do you think uh, play on people's minds when deciding whether to take a patient in or not? I think it kind of comes back to what I was sort of getting at, which is um, you have to have an awareness of what all the possibilities of this patient's underlying condition are. Um, and I think the broader you can make that, the safer you are. So I think you really have to sort of hedge your diagnosis of what you think it is, but you definitely have to then step back and think, okay, now I need to think of, I've got to force myself to think of five other things it could be, regardless of whether they seem a little bit crazy or not. But like think, list five other things that it could be and then kind of tick them off and sort of think, well, is that is that likely? What are the risks in, in leaving that patient at home and what do I need to do to safety net and I think it definitely comes down to that thinking about what the all all the other possibilities are um of that the the patient's condition and then thinking about what the risks are in leaving that patient at home yeah that sounds that all sounds absolutely on point on the on the safety netting then I think it's fair to ask uh, Jen on on your experience I'm not expecting you to list everything but but what does what does safety netting look like when leaving a patient at home or or not sending an ambulance to them? I think it depends on why. So if we've gone out to a patient that has very mild symptoms, um, like a very low knee score, so they're mildly unwell, they need some help, but that's not from an accident and emergency department, then I think it's ensuring that we're referring them on to another healthcare professional, a GP or somebody else to take up that care. And also very accurate worsening advice. So not to just say to them, give us a call back if you get worse or just wag on the paperwork, but to actually explain it to them. So sort of in a track and trigger type way to explain this is what you've got. This is potentially what could go wrong. These are the symptoms that you need to look out for. And if these do appear, this is what you need to do. So I think somebody who was referred on, that's very important somebody who's refusing point blank to travel that's quite a different thing that we need to explain to them so to just go into firstly why are they refusing is it something that we can navigate around are they refusing because they're afraid of hospitals because they're the main care for their wife and we could put something in so try to ascertain why they're refusing and if you can actually solve that for them make sure they know everything before they're refusing. So if we've got a tachycardic patient and we haven't done an ECG on them, we're not giving them the full information to make that informed refusal because there might be something on that ECG that would change their opinion. If you've told them everything and they still point blank don't want to go and you can't circumnavigate that, that then comes down to capacity. And if they do have the capacity, very, very good safety netting. So document your conversations, why are they refusing, what have you done to try and affect it, what have you told them, and then they're onwards. So going back to your worsening, your track and trigger, and just involve somebody else in their care, tell the GP, GP assist, mental health referral, just somebody else that knows that we've been out there so that if anything changes or that they can follow it up with them. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I think that's really, really useful information. I want to ask all three of you, though, and I will go round in in turn, the the role of the ambulance service and paramedicine in particular, I know has changed over 
X number of years. Uh, if you if you ask people on the street what the ambulance service does, that they expect it to be blood, guts, trauma, blue lights and sirens, black to jobs here, there and everywhere, saving patients all day and, and off you go. But we all know that that's not necessarily the case. So, and to start with you, do you think that the, the role of the ambulance service has a has a factor in that about, like you said earlier, not necessarily admission avoidance, but using the right pathway for the patient, but the pathways, there are now so many different pathways for so many different cases and incidents yeah for sure and you know the way that our service has evolved to adapt to the um, different type of workload that we have over the years um, has has reflected that so um, you know things along the lines of Jenny's role in in ECAT that's uh, a service which has been massively beefed up over say the last three or four years um, from where we were previously to where we are now and to the point where my understanding is that the, the, the team is dealing with kind of up to 10% of our call volume daily. Um, and, and that's obviously clearly saving a lot of um, emergency responses um, by dealing with patients over the phone in, in the hear and treat um, method. Um, so it, it absolutely is up to the ambulance service as we're currently operating to find those different routes, either, you know, be it through the ECAT team and signposting that way or be it through the the see and treat um, type approach as well um, utilizing apps as MIDOS for example to find kind of referral pathways um, and appropriately referring through them or, or to primary care to ensure that the patients do get um, to see the right person to get that right treatment. Definitely uh, Lou, in again, in your experience, uh, do you think it's it's fair to say that the, the role of the ambulance service has changed? Uh, again, in the podcast that's coming out after this, we talked about uh, the the role of the CCP and how it's at this kind of mix of trauma and medical knowledge, which maybe wasn't necessarily the case a few years ago. Do you think that it the role is ever evolving? Yeah, definitely. I think the paramedic profession is is really changing it's it's kind of not not the same thing anymore and i think um educationally we're becoming quite an academic um profession um and yeah as you alluded to sort of in my role in my experience the uh the role as our as our advanced practitioners or paramedics are really developing exponentially i think that the the scope of the uh of the role is is just getting bigger and bigger um and we're sort of covering a lot of uh, areas of of uh, medicine and trauma as well so i think it's just growing it's quite exciting it's really exciting you look across the world to um to other parts other countries and what they're doing with their clinicians and i think we all have a bit of a different name or title but essentially we're sort of all treating exactly the same patients and I think we're all looking to do a very similar sort of medicine and, and skill set. And the reason that I ask about these things is because the the role the role of going out on an ambulance and seeing patients even from my understanding has changed over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years etc etc. So the impact of taking a patient in you know just sucking diesel and getting them to hospital or not has has changed quite dramatically so it's really interesting to 
to get that that viewpoint of the ambulance service as this ever evolving organisation in in a healthcare setting. So I want to go on to uh, non conveyance in general and. Uh, what we see goes wrong with non-conveyance. So, Jen, I'm going to start with you. What what are the kind of things that we're seeing that goes wrong when we don't convey patients to hospitals? So these usually come to our attention a number of ways, really. We can receive a complaint from the patient or the family. It could be that a second crew has gone out the following day to find a big sick patient and they may raise it for us to just have a look at the first decision. And it can also be um, dispatch if they get a call to a cardiac arrest of an address that we left a patient at home in the last couple of days, they may raise it to us. Thankfully, a large amount of these that we look into are wholly safe decisions. So we'll have a look into the CAD records, the PCRs. We might ask the crew for a statement and then just look into what happened and why. If they look to be completely safe decisions with what we were discussing before about good safety netting, observations were in normal limits, then that's not something that our team would look into any further. It's when we start to look at things and, and start to question the first decision. So, for example, if someone was left at home with chest pain and there was no ECG taken and we then know we go back the next day with a cardiac arrest, that's something that we would start to look into a little bit more because, of course, we would expect an ECG to be undertaken with a patient with chest pain. Um, also, similarly, if someone had a lot of observations that were out of normal limits, so a high news score or something that would alert us on the first attendance, but we can see that there was no follow-up or the patient wasn't taken in without reason, then that would be something that we would look into a little bit deeper. Um, very much the same with the refusals as well, if there was a refusal on the first attendance. But there doesn't appear to be any documentation as to what, why, how, capacity or anything to circumnavigate this. Then that is something that we'd look into a little bit further to see if it does need to be escalated to a serious incident. Lou, coming to you with your experience, and I'm going to mention the human factors term here. Why do we think people are are making these decisions or, or not inputting that information from a, from a human factors perspective? I think it's, uh, again, coming back to my first point about um, remembering to step back and think about the differentials. So I think, you know, I've definitely been there when the MDT says allergic reaction and all I can think about is this is an allergic reaction. And actually, it's something else, something we're seeing, like surgical emphysema from a pneumothorax. Um, like that's something completely not in your mindset. And all you've seen is allergic reaction on the MDT. So it's hard to fight the human instinct of that is what your sort of the confirmation bias almost of, you know, it fits the picture. They've just had something to eat. You can sort of you can really sort of make the story fit. And, and that is human nature. So it's trying to break that. Um and I think uh, the other thing which I know um, you're aware, Jordan, we talked a lot about on uh, on the, the um, critical care podcast, which is about sharing decision making, um, <clears throat> which <clears throat> we've got a lot of avenues in the trust that it might not just be you and your colleague, because um, obviously you might be working on your own. But we do have clinical advice line and we do have ways of sharing decision making. I think that's a really important part and something we say any do in my area of practice in critical care, which is sharing that decision making almost every job. 
Um, so I think it might seem really obvious and it's not until you speak to someone remotely from the incident that they spot something you just haven't seen. And, and that's a classic thing, I think. Yeah, those are some really good points. And actually, like you say, we, we go into that in quite a bit of detail in, in the podcast with you and Chris. So, and based off, off of that, the argument that I hear based on that kind of information is I'm not an x-ray machine. I don't have a CT machine. I can't definitively say that this patient doesn't have some underlying condition because we know that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of things that could be wrong with the patient so why should I not just take everyone in just to be safe yeah sure um and and you know ultimately that would be the the safest thing to do would be to take everybody to hospital because then you haven't got to make that decision yourself but we all know that actually in terms of um, the healthcare economy and the healthcare system that that's not a sustainable way of uh, managing our our service users so I couldn't agree more with both um, you know what Lou and Jen have, have said so far um, and particularly around that um, shared and remote decision making um, because that's such a valuable and, and useful tool that we've got um, to utilize and probably one which is underutilized um, at the moment uh, but I guess really the answer to your question for me is kind of one of the three main things which I think we um, we fall down a little bit on in terms of that safe discharge of a patient's care. Um, and specifically in answering this question, it's around the risk stratification of a patient's condition. And um, this is a, a phrase which kind of um, we've been using recently within the team, and it's not necessarily something which um, is widely used or, or necessarily understood um, out in practice and obviously that's a, that's a very real generalization uh, because I'm sure there are, are people who fully understand kind of risk stratification risk management in terms of that clinical decision making so clearly I don't want to um, you know tar everyone with the same brush but it's equally okay not to fully understand that um, and particularly for somebody who is less experienced and, and seen fewer cases to, to learn from um, out there, then, then risk management of, of clinical conditions might seem a bit more alien. So in terms of in terms of that, I kind of there's one way of looking at it in terms of, as Lewis already said, around trying to five, find five differential diagnoses and ruling each one of those out as you go along and almost looking at it in terms of a if it's this this condition, what's going to harm the patient today? If if I don't take this patient into hospital, what's going to harm them or kill them today if they don't get um, don't get seen, assessed, treated for this condition? And it's going through that list of say five conditions and ruling out the most dangerous, followed by the second most dangerous, and so on and so forth, until you get to the point where actually you're quite confident through your history taking your clinical assessments your knowledge your training um, your tests that you've done like ecgs and observations you've ruled out everything which actually probably needs to be seen at the hospital and then you're kind of left with those lower acuity conditions which as we've already said can possibly then be managed uh, through alternative pathways such as primary care now there's a few things that we can do to kind of help um, assist us with this risk um, management of patients and one of the, the, the kind of key things which Jen's mentioned a couple of times is, is um, like risk stratification tools or calculators um, so the, the one which 
um, people are, are really kind of um, familiar with is news too. So um, we know that that looks at, at various physiological parameters, so heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturations, temperature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you come out with a, a score at the end of it. And what we would generally say is, um, if the patient has a, a news of four or more, then that patient is going to most likely benefit from conveyance to hospital um, due to the fact that they are at higher risk of deterioration from whatever it is that's causing that news two score to be high. Um, what we then obviously say is if they score three or less, they're at lower risk of deterioration. So it's kind of building up that that the use of the language of risk and and identifying and understanding that patients who are at lower risk, i.e. score a lower news too, can be managed in alternative pathways um, very, very possibly. But again, that goes back to the shared decision making, because actually if you, you call up the GP or you call up the clinical advice line and say, I've got a, a patient with a news of three, um, you know, I, I'm just calling up to see if you're happy to manage this patient. And they say, have you thought about this or, you know, whatever, and, and they come up with something. And it's not to say that patients with a, a new score of under four don't go to hospital. It's actually saying that they're at, high, at lower risk of deterioration. And if we can start to get into that mindset and using that language of using risk to um, to inform our decisions as to who needs to go to hospital and who doesn't need to go to hospital, and even if we can start using actual statistics, so, you know, if we do some CPD ourselves around understanding what risk a, a patient with a new score of two is of deteriorating, so are they at 10% risk of deterioration of whatever that, that condition is, and we start to inform patients of that risk, then they are able to fully consent to whatever you're recommending and, and able to be fully informed as to that, that decision. Now, news two isn't the only calculator or score that we can use. So there are many, many, many scores and calculators that we can use um, and are used by all healthcare professionals, GPs, hospital doctors, um, advanced paramedics, normal paramedics, and, and all the other clinical grades um, with whom we work. Um, and there are various tools out there. So obviously news two is on the EPCR, but there's other things out there um, uh, which could be used. So, for example, the Wells score for um, identifying risk of a PE um, and, um, you know, scores along those lines, which can be accessed online. Um, I think there's a website um, called MD Calc, which has got a load of um, different um, calculators on which can be used. Um, so that's an app actually as well. And is that an app? Yeah, yeah, it's a good app. Yeah, yeah MD Calc. So, so um, it's, you know, there's, there's resources available out there. Um, that can help you make those decisions um, and what it helps then do is kind of take you away from that system one automated thinking model that we that we we've looked at certainly through the learning from incident stuff that we've done and more into that system two real analytical thinking of of actually getting away from that autopilot and just writing numbers down because the policy says we've got to write numbers down and the policy says that we've got to listen to the chest but actually not analysing that against what we're seeing in front of us. Uh, and I think those calculators just really help us kind of flick from that system one to system two to actually think, 
what is the risk here to my patient? No, thank you for that. That was that's really interesting and really insightful. And I, I really like that you talk about uh, how we we talk about risk in general, because I, I think without going too wide on it, as a society, we don't necessarily talk about risk, or if we do, it's immediately about how to mitigate or or get rid of risk entirely. However, we all know that in this pre-hospital setting, we can never eliminate risk because there are so many factors which are outside of our control that that that's never possible so it's about it's about managing that risk isn't it and when you were when you were talking about that the uh, something that came to my mind is that I can't remember the the exact statistic but something like 30% of all car crashes happen within a mile of your home don't they you you go into this autonomous, like you say, system one thinking, which is where you just bounce from, I've seen this before, therefore it was that, therefore it is this, this time. And actually, that one time that you go around the bend and there is oil on the road that wasn't there yesterday and wasn't there for the past four years is the time that you crash. So that, for me, from a from a lay, non-clinical person point of view, is is kind of that that point. It could be something that you've seen hundreds of times on the road but actually this one time that that chest pain on the right side isn't what it was the 99 times previously uh, yeah i think so and i think um this is probably why when we look at non-conveyance incidents we see actually more experienced clinicians um are involved more often than not rather than the the less experienced clinicians because i think that experience whilst it is great and it gives you that understanding of how kind of patients progress in their illness and and what you need to do to prevent that progression what it also does is it gives you that um you know almost kind of false assurances and you get into that system one um automation type approach and it's you know sometimes called highway hypnosis isn't it in terms of how many times have you kind of left work after a night shift driven home you get home and you think how the hell did i get here it's because you you are fully in that kind of mode of, of not even thinking about what you're doing and changing gear because you're so experienced with it and, and braking because you're so experienced with it but you get home and you just think i don't know if i've run a red light here i don't know you know i don't know if i've killed a cat <laughs> or something like that on the way home because you've just purely been in that um in that automated mindset so i think it's really just having that awareness that as an experienced clinician we can go into calls that we've seen a thousand times before and just be so automated in what we're doing and not being aware that actually there's a real red flag sticking out in front of you that this patient is actually slightly different to the last and this patient um, is at high risk of deterioration um, and therefore we need to manage this patient very differently from what we managed uh, you know several patients that came before that who were presenting very similarly but without that specific red flag yeah definitely and it sounds like experience can be a bit of a blessing and a curse because we we mentioned the kind of 1010 schemes which we have going on at the minute around stroke trauma that sort of stuff where in my experience anyway what i've seen is that sometimes a more experienced clinician will come in make a decision and go whereas a a newer clinician will uh, want to take a bit of time, you know, run a few more checks and and not go as as quickly. But also, like you say, 
that experience can also mean that people come in and say, oh, I'm not worried about that and go, but it leads to an incident like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely not a criticism at all of experienced clinicians. I think it's just another one of those things that as you build your experience, you just need to be aware of to um, to make that decision to flip between the autopilot and the more analytical way of thinking. It's just an awareness thing. Definitely. And Lou, I'm going to come back to that podcast that no one's heard yet because we haven't released it. Can you share the tip about the 10 minutes, 10 seconds thinking just to try and keep people out of that system one thinking? Mm. Yeah, it particularly applies when uh, when there's time pressure um, and sort of, you know, the demand is high and the stress levels are probably high. And it's about taking 10 seconds of pause to gain 10 minutes of probably seen time, actually. So it is kind of it's kind of born from one of our consultant um, governance consultants at one of the air ambulances who um, used to tell us that, you know, when you're trying to rush and make the scene time really short because, you know, the patient's critical and needs an intervention immediately at hospital, that um, that actually a more haste, less speed, you can take, you can actually gain more time if you take 10 seconds to pause, look around you, absorb the information and actually get everyone on the same page. So everyone needs to share the same mental model. Um, otherwise, you are working in different silos. So taking 10 seconds to pause, although it feels really strange, um, actually gains you time and, and definitely improves sort of patient outcome, patient care. And I guess you can probably apply that to these non-conveyance jobs in that if you're sort of feeling like you're just you know rattling through you've seen this patient before you know what to do you're doing the procedure actually let's just stop and really think about what we're doing um and really think about uh whether this is the right decision for the patient and and what are the risks that we've talked about that's fantastic thank you so much and again you know i i think those kind of points we can't reiterate enough because they're such useful nuggets of information that i'll i'll keep sharing them as as much as i possibly can so moving on from this slightly, and I'm going to go to Jen first. In one of the previous podcasts, we had a paramedic called Andy Collin on, who's a national investigator for incidents and a paramedic for CCAM. And he had this theory called the garden path test. Now, the idea is that you get to the bottom of the garden path and when you put your hand on their, uh, on their gate, if you feel like something's wrong, then you've probably made the wrong decision in some way, shape or form. So for you, Jen, what what do you have to do when you're leaving a patient at home that you pass the garden path test? Um, I think it's a number of things, really. Um, it's taking into account things around you. So if the patient appears okay to me, but I've got a really concerned caregiver or a really concerned parent, I think that needs exploring because they know this person. Something has, has caused them to call. And it's exploring that a bit more. Why did you call today instead of yesterday? What's what's changed? What's worrying you? And looking into that a bit more. Um, it's surrounding sort of the culture as well. So I try to sort of reassure my crewmates, challenge me. Because at three in the morning, when I haven't had a coffee for two hours, my decisions are sometimes really not the right decisions. 
And I really want whoever I work with, whether it's their first day, whether they've been in for 20 years, if they don't agree with what I'm saying, I want them to challenge me. And I will always run my decisions by my crewmates. So I'll make a decision, I'll check it with the patient, check it with the caregiver, check it with my crewmate. And before I finalise that PCR, I just get my crewmate to look through because they're a second set of eyes. They're going to pick something out that I haven't um, noticed and potentially could save my backside down the line if I haven't documented or, or raised something that I really should have done. The other thing I learned with experience is multiple contacts. So when I first came out on the road, I would be quite reassured if I went out to a child who had seen the GP two days ago and started on antibiotics and was seen in hospital yesterday and was checked out and was fine. And now they're calling us today. I would think, well, this is safe. You know, this kid has seen two people that are much more experienced than me and they're happy for this kid to stay at home. So I, I can leave them at home. But actually down the line, a lot more experience, I've realised that no, that is a massive red flag. If this person has already seen two different pathways and these parents or caregivers are still calling back, there's something really wrong here. So, so even if there is nothing wrong with that patient, that they're going in because something is, is not happy with, with the family. It might just be anxiety and a, a third assurance helps them. But that's that's definitely one of my things that jumps out to me. That's so so true, and, Jen. And I think it, it it kind of goes back to that false assurances and confirmation bias, doesn't it? That actually you you take that assurance that they're okay because somebody else has seen them. That that does what that doesn't negate is the fact that somebody else might have missed something too, and and you're now going to be the second person that's missed that thing. So um, fully agree with that point. Definitely. And it's it's just making sure you have the confidence to go back on your decisions. So I've triaged calls in ECAP, I've made a decision, I've got off the phone and then I've thought, do you know what, I'm not happy about that and I'm still going to be thinking about that patient in an hour and in two hours. And that's a real red flag for me. So I've run people back before and said, actually, on, um, on second thoughts with that, I've changed my mind and this is what we're going to do. And I think very much in the house, if you, you make that decision, but then something's just niggling at you or your crewmate doesn't seem happy with it, never, ever be afraid to change your mind. It doesn't discredit you at all. I'm it's just so, so important to go by your instincts. I am so glad that you said that. I'm, I'm genuinely so glad. Again, you know, us as a as a society, we we tend to struggle with saying we made a mistake, that we got something wrong and, and changing our minds. You know, there's a, there's a whole load of stuff about uh, cognitive dissonance you know making a making an easy solution when actually the the truth isn't uh, as comfortable to do and you know saying I've, I've messed up I, I think I've got this wrong and going back and correcting it for some people is is really difficult and what were you going to say yeah no more along the same lines really it's just so refreshing to hear something you know somebody say that in terms of I'm happy to be challenged and I'm happy to, um, you know, check my own decisions and go back on it because it's so important that we are able to not only challenge other people's decisions, but be challenged as well. So, um, you know, it, it absolutely breeds a, a really healthy working relationship. If I can say something and, you know, Lou, for example, can say, well, actually, no, I really disagree with that. Like, I think it should, we should be doing something different. And I can accept that and go, actually, you know what? Yeah, I can see your point. And then we can come to that kind of mutual decision and, and way forward. 
um, because actually if if I just kind of go blindly making decisions all over the place um, and people just go along with that, then that it's just um, prone to, to errors and prone to not being the right thing to do. So um, checking yourself, being challenged and giving challenges is, is really, really healthy. So, and can I say that's like so key right across the hierarchy gradient, and there shouldn't be a hierarchy gradient, but naturally there is, and like especially from like clinician um, skill level. And having worked now in critical care for uh, eight years, like I've worked with some really, really experienced, knowledgeable consultants. And they are so open to be challenged and I feel empowered to challenge them. And at the end of the day, we're all human and we will make a mistake. Everyone will. Everyone will do it. But if we challenge each other, then hopefully the idea is that you have my back, I'll have your back. And I'm exactly the same when I work with students on ambulances. Like I want you to challenge everything I do because hopefully we'll pick up the mistake that a human makes. And, and that's that's so something we've seen in SIs in the past where somebody of less experience or a lower clinical grade has not had the confidence to actually speak up um, and challenge um, somebody of a higher clinical grade or, or somebody with more experience. And actually, if they had done, then it might have avoided the error occurring. So it's, it's you know, it's not it's all almost natural human behavior to not want to be challenged because we always want to be right and that's that's natural and that's okay to feel like that um and you know nobody ever wants to be wrong and it's almost bred into you from such a young age at school isn't it like if you're if you're if you do something wrong then you potentially can be punished for that thing and so you're almost um you know nurtured into um feeling really bad and feeling really defensive if actually you, you do make the wrong decision or, or um, you know, say the wrong thing. So it's just, you know, it's just so important that we're, we're able as a profession to be able to maturely have that discussion and not feel gotten at or defensive if somebody questions what you're doing, because actually it's the safest thing that you could possibly do is to actually question something because you can avoid an incident from happening by doing that thing. And I, th I think this is so important. I want to stick with it for a minute. So what I'm going to do is go around to the three of you and ask for your individual tips on uh, challenging people and also being challenged, because I've, I've definitely mentioned it in the past. We're never taught how to receive feedback or, or receive criticism or, or development tips. And, and that's really, from experience anyway, that's really difficult to take. Now, Lou, I'm going to start with you because I think people are are, like you say, less likely to challenge a CCP because of the psychological factor of you turn up in a massive helicopter, there's normally ACDC music playing in the background as well, it's all Gucci and cool and you get out in your flight suits and everything, but this is it, isn't it? You turn up and you you look the part, you've, you've turned up in a, in a quote-unquote cool way and then why would someone challenge you? Because you've got all the kit, the experience... Why would they challenge you and how would you be wanting to be challenged in that situation? Yeah, I think um, it's something I've had to really learn quickly and um, and I've been in an environment to have the opportunity to learn it. So obviously there are two aspects to this, aren't there? There's the, the person feeling empowered to challenge and there's the person willing to be challenged. And I think probably 
the one word that they both have to have and as a trust value is respect. And you have to respect each other um, to challenge and be challenged. And I think um, it, it comes down, which I'm sure you probably talked about before, Jordan, is like the um, Elaine Bromley case where um, you have to respect and understand that the person with the least experience may well spot the thing going wrong because they're the one that stood back and not sort of task fixated, which we often become. Um, so it's understanding that anyone can spot something that's going wrong um, and respecting the fact that, you know, they should be allowed to raise that and you definitely want them to raise it. Um, and the, the tip or the top tip I've probably tried to do, and I hope it works, is when I work with uh, students or, or people that are not of the same skill set as me, um, I will start the shift and I will tell them how stupid I am and I will tell them how I don't know how to work this, I I will make a mistake with this, I'm not familiar with that. Um, obviously, I'm working on ambulances quite a bit more now, but when I, when I hadn't done for a while, I would make sure my crewmate knew, I don't know how to work this bit of kit anymore, I haven't used it for ages, like we need to go over this. Can you like watch me and make sure I'm doing this right? There's certain drugs that I don't give regularly that I used to. So I'd always check that with somebody. And I think putting it out there at the very beginning, this is a team effort, like treat me as if I don't know anything. And that way we'll hopefully not make any mistakes and, and they'll feel empowered to raise it. And I think it's definitely for me about respecting each other. Uh, that's that's fantastic. That's That's exactly the kind of message that I was hoping you would say um so i know that i know that time is is precious to everyone so i want to move on to a few other bits and i want to come to you and i want to talk about making informed decisions how do you do that in an environment where you know you're 11 hours into a 12 hour shift on your fourth set of nights what is what are your tips around making decisions especially around things like uh mental capacity for example you know with all these different different factors yeah so as i mentioned earlier there were kind of three things for me to that lead to a safe discharge the first is obviously identifying the risk um and then the second is uh, communicating that risk um which is to the patient which is you informing them um of their condition and um, at what risk they are of deteriorating from that condition or or not. Um, so, you know, the, the very the very phrase an informed decision means that you are giving that person the information to make a, a decision as to what to do with their care. So, um, you know, we often see um, documented on patient care records, um, literally just patient refused. Um, but what that doesn't tell us is what information they've been given in order to arrive at that decision. So this is where that informed decision making thing is so, so important. So in terms of allowing the patient to make that decision, because essentially you are seeking their consent to um, to discharge them at, at home. So they need to be able to make that consent in an, in an 
in an informed manner. Um, so you need to tell them about the risks. You need to use those percentages like we discussed earlier. You need to tell them what your working diagnosis is and why you are recommending what you're recommending, be that take them to hospital, be that refer them to primary care, whatever the disposition is for that patient that you've decided on. Um, you need to tell them. Um, and um, patients should then fully understand their condition, the risk of treatment versus the risk of no treatment. And particularly at the moment, I think one of the real concerns is, is that I'm more at risk of getting coronavirus by going to hospital than um, I am at risk of deteriorating from my genuine medical condition from staying at home. And, you know, quite clearly that's not the case. And, and, you know, nothing has changed in terms of thresholds for taking people to hospital at, at this point um, than what they were pre-COVID. Um, so, uh, you know, essentially we've specifically right now, we need to tell them, we need to tell patients that they're at, at no greater risk by going to hospital um, than not. Um, and they are still at a significant risk of deteriorating by staying at home. Um, and then that just builds that kind of, that uh, the picture of your concerns and why you're recommending to go to hospital. Clearly, however, people are still able to make an unwise decision should they be deemed to have the mental capacity to make that unwise decision. But they can only make an unwise decision if they've got the information with which to make that decision, which is why everything you know that I've just said is, is so important to inform them of the risk. Um, and obviously, in terms of mental capacity, we, we do have to assume that somebody has mental capacity to make that decision uh, to, or to make an unwise decision, unless there's very clear evidence that that they, they lack that capacity. And generally, we kind of um, we go about that in terms of the two stages, the mental capacity assessment, don't we? We, we talk about stage one, which is identifying whether a patient has any impairment or disturbance of their mind and if they don't then actually we assume that they have got the mental capacity as an adult um, to make decisions whether that be unwise or not. Um, if we identify that they do have an impairment or a disturbance of their brain uh, then we must move on to stage two which is obviously looking at um, whether they understand the information that you've given them in the previous step, whether they are able to weigh up and evaluate and retain that information um, and then be able to communicate back to you a, yeah, a rationale for not wanting to follow your advice um, in, you know, in a, in a um, kind of sensible manner. So um, that's kind of your stage two. Obviously, at that stage, if they are able to demonstrate that they have, they are um, mentally capacitant, then then they can still make that unwise decision, um, but only if they are they are informed. Of, of the risk. Um, it's that stage then that we have to then start considering other options. So if our advice is to take them to hospital and they point blankly refuse um, in, with the information to do so, they've got the mental capacity to do so, then we need to look at kind of other um, lesser resistant paths such as primary care referral, um, urgent care refer urgent care centre referral, etc, etc. Um, because actually it's incumbent upon us to um, refer somebody if they're not going to um, take your your kind of bottom line advice, which in a lot of on a lot of occasions is going to be go to hospital. It is definitely a challenge, isn't it? And like we say, it's it, 
a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is not about people's skill sets. It's about using those skill sets and the thought processes to make informed and safe decisions for the benefit of the the patient. So thank you so much for that. Jen, I'm going to come to you now because uh, I know that you've done quite a bit of work recently around uh, documentation. And if I said to you, wag, what would you say back to me? I think the phrase wag um, came from ECAP, if I remember rightly. And within ECAP, we have one fantastic advantage, which is the calls are taped. So if there is any complaint, if anything goes wrong with the patient, we don't have to rely so much on documentation because there is a tape recording there and everybody can hear what was said, what worsening advice was given. So it became the norm to just write WAG, WAG, worsening advice given on the end of the call because we didn't need to document to anybody or anybody what we'd said because it's all on tape. That's then gone out on CAD notes and it seems to have been picked up on the road. So we're seeing an awful lot of PCRs with WAG written on there, but absolutely no documentation of what WAG has been given. So by all means, please write WAG, but if you can just document afterwards exactly what it is that you've said, what worsening advice, going back to what we were saying earlier about track and trigger, symptoms to expect, um, you know, a generalised, if anything gets worse, call us back, but something more specific to their condition as well, so with head injuries, symptoms to look out for, red flags, and just documenting it, document what you explain to them, what to look out for, what could go wrong, and what your advice would be if that is the case. That was going to be my next question, actually. You you mentioned at the start of this about uh, looking at patient care records and, you know, seeing a, a good documented one and understanding that the, the correct safety netting was, was put in place. I just wonder if briefly you could go over... I, it's very difficult in this audio format, but what that kind of looks like when you're when you're reading a good PCR. And we've just actually sent an example out. I believe that will be coming out this week of one that was something we looked into. Um, sadly, the gentleman actually passed away the following day. Um, I believe he took his own life. But when we looked back at the PCR from when he was left at scene, it was as safe a discharge as it could possibly be. He'd refused care but the clinicians had discussed with him, why are you refusing? They'd tried to circumnavigate his refusal. They'd put in place various safety nets. They'd involved his GP, his family. They'd respected his decision that he had the capacity to make, but they made everything surrounding it as safe as they possibly can. There was excellent documentation. And due to that, there was no further investigation needed because clearly the decision that had been made had been safely backed up. I think generally on the PCR, it's to just give us a, a a very good picture of what you're seeing. So on arrival, what do you see? Does the patient come to the door? Are they a good colour? Are they talking? And then going into, we don't have a structured way of doing it, but system-based or A to E, whatever's the best way that you prefer to document. But the more you can get down on there, the better, really. What you've seen, what you've come across what OBS are abnormal and if so, any reason for abnormal, what you've done to address it. And then mainly the, the treatment, the plan, the worsening, just, just detail as much as you can, document as much as you can. 
Yeah, um, I was going to make a proposal actually that we could all, as you know, as as trust members of staff and clinicians, kind of sign up to. Could we perhaps do um, like a, a partial ban on the phrases "wag," uh, "patient refused," um, and another one which we often see is that um, they were offered to be taken to hospital, <laughs> um, which, which of, often makes me laugh. It's almost like, yeah, hop on, mate. We're, we're heading that way anyway. So, um, would you like? To, you know, we're happy to take you to hospital. Um, so could we could we potentially commit to having a partial ban on those phrases? And I say partial ban because actually, like Jen has just said, it's okay to write wag as long as you then document exactly what that wag is. It's okay to write patient refused as long as you write what information they've been given and what kind of process you've gone through to get to that stage which they're still refusing. Um, and in terms of patient was offered to go, well, actually we need to be advising whether they need to go or not based on the risk of their condition. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't ever be offering to take them to hospital. We should be advising you need to go to hospital because of, or we advise that you don't go to hospital because of, um, but not uh, we could kind of take you if you want, because that, that's kind of, that isn't really a clinical decision of any sort and almost puts the decision back onto the patient and their family when actually they're not in a position to make that decision without the information. So that was just a, a little um, a little proposal anyway. I don't know what everybody thinks of, of that partial ban of those phrases. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I'd like it. It, it, it would, uh, I think it would be great for us in our department, obviously, because we would understand what the clinicians were thinking at the time and how they rationalise their decision making and and when it just says wag I mean we're none the wiser like we, we're not sure if they understood the infant uh, they understood the patient presentation what the possibilities were what the risks were so it would help us but I think just physically writing it down yourself when you're there with the patient helps you process it as well makes you think about what what you're actually advising the patient and then it's obviously there for the patient as well which is really important so it's not just nice for us to understand your decision making it's it's actually helps you so I think I'd love to ban wag we'll we'll wag off and get rid of it that's fantastic so again I'm aware of time so what I'm going to do is summarize what I think we've covered over this sort of hour or so and if you if you feel like I've missed any bits then please chime in but essentially what we've talked about is the, the role of the ambulance service has changed over the last few years. Uh, it's something that is incredibly dynamic, uh, quite challenging, and uh, is, is a generalism rather than a specialism when, you know, the ambulance service are generalists in, in pretty much everything. So it's, it's challenging to make uh, good and safe decisions, which is why it's so important that when you are making decisions, you are making them carefully. You know, you're using informed decision-making techniques like Ant mentioned. You're speaking to other healthcare practitioners like Lou said and Jenny said. doesn't necessarily have to be the ones in next to you in the trust. If you, if you and your crewmate both don't know what the answer is, then there are services in, in our trust anyway, like Clinical Advice Line and there's out-of-hours GPs and there's all these different sorts of uh, options, but it's so important that you speak to someone else if you're not sure because they will have a view and experience that you may not have and see things through a very different lens. It's also really important that 
as a clinician, you'll feel comfortable with challenging other people, expressing the fact that you see things from a different perspective as them, and also comfortable enough to be challenged because someone may have seen something that you haven't. And I think we've also mentioned about the system one, system two thinking, just check yourself when you're when you're making these decisions. Well, in in life in general, when you're driving to that job, when you get to the job, when you're looking at the patient's obs, always think, am I am I just jumping to a conclusion? Sometimes that's okay, but sometimes as well, it's really important to stop and analyse your decision making. Have I missed anything? I think for me, um, kind of the, the two things I'll always say to, to anybody that we speak to around um, kind of clinical decision making or anything is, it's actually okay not to know the answer. I think I think we put too much pressure on ourselves to feel like we need to know everything and, and that then puts pressure on ourselves to make a decision and stick to it. But uh, it's okay not to know the answer as long as you seek out that answer um, by um, accessing advice remotely. Uh, and the other thing is it's, it's also okay to be wrong um, as long as um, you learn from, from being wrong um, and, you know, if you've identified that you're wrong in time put that 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 thing right um so they're kind of the two main things uh, in terms of summarizing the whole lot it's such a complex thing um in terms of discharging a, a patient's care it's just really uh, it's really difficult to to summarize it but it's just everything that we've already said i've uh, i've written out a little flow chart of non-conveyance decision making flow chart i think it i think it'd be nice to summarize it but in my head you assess the patient and you've got to, you've got to take all that information in, haven't you? So you've got to think about why are they called 999? Who else has seen them? Do your primary, secondary survey, observations, history, ECG, the risk stratification you're talking about. Then you need to make that decision. Do they need to go to hospital or not? And that is really hard. And that's, I think, the hardest bit I remember from my training and I think other people do is making that decision. So if you're not sure, and it's OK not to be sure, as you said, then share the decision-making and ask someone else. Um, and then when you've made that decision, inform the patient. And we need to think about valid consent, don't we, like you said. So giving them the information and what are the risks. Um, valid consent also needs to be voluntary, so they need to not be under influence from anyone else. And then obviously have capacity. Um, and then if they have capacity and they refuse then it all needs to be documented and safety netted. And if they don't have capacity, then we need to think about least restrictive methods. But it looks like you've already been thinking about that, Anne. It's only something which I put together um, for to assist me as a bit of an aid memoir when I'm on the clinical advice line, um, in terms of just gives me a bit of a, a model and a structure to go through in terms of um, in terms of what I want to know in order to be able to offer the most effective advice. What you won't have seen on the podcast is Ant just flashed up on Teams a step-by-step uh, -step process for when he's on the clinical advice line uh, about how he makes his decisions. And again, I can't stress enough, you know, the importance of people think that they should know all the information, but the, the reason a checklist exists is so that you can not spend the cognitive energy thinking about, right, what's the next step? You spend it focusing on on the thing in front of you. So I'm going to wrap it up there unless anyone has anything burning that they want to that they want to say before we go. Everyone's shaking their head, which is <laughs> fantastic. So guys, I just want to say thank you so much for for spending the time uh, talking about this. I think it's something that we all feel very passionately about. 
what we'll do in the show notes of this episode is kind of put links to everything that we've talked about and and uh, guidance and all that sort of stuff because we know that this goes out to more than just East staff and there may be people out there who who are interested in this sort of area anyway in their own organisations. Uh, for now, I'll say thank you very much, uh, Lou Ann, and Jenny. You've all been fantastic. I would say I'll see you soon, but I know we've got a meeting in a couple of hours, so I'll see you in a bit anyway, the, the magic of recording these things. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Stay safe, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have any questions, my email address is in the show notes below, so feel free to drop me a line. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.